speak here. A lot of discussion has gone on the last year with things going on here. Um, it's been good to discuss these things. With Matt, I do feel a little bit nervous though, knowing usually if they don't like you, you're just not invited back, but I might be out of a job if this doesn't go well. It's a bad start, I didn't even wear a tie, but Matt should remember I am a Ridgewooder, he should be happy I'm wearing a shirt. If you want to turn to Psalm 5, I believe that's where you're at when you're plodding through the Psalms. <clears throat> <clears throat> Psalm 5 To the choir master for the flutes, a psalm of David Give ear to my word, Lord Consider my groaning Give attention to the sound of my cry My King and my God For to you do I pray O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice In the morning I prepare, prepare a sacrifice For you and watch You are not a God who delights in wickedness Evil may not dwell with you the boastful, boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness. Because of my enemies, make your way straight before me. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out. For they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy. And spread your protection over them. That those who love your name may exalt in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover them with favor, as with a shield. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this morning, for the gathering that's here, for the people who make up this church. We pray that you would just be with those who are here, be with me as I speak. Lord, any words that come from up here that are not from you, from your word, uh, may it not be thought about or remembered, but let your word speak and let it do whatever you intend. May the Spirit be working in whichever ways you have ordained. Pray this all in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. So, from talking with Matt, I gather that this is a bit of a theological astute church. So I'm going to read something and see how many of you recognize it. It goes, well, I am nothing but a simple man. People call me redneck. I reckon that I am. But there's things going on that make me mad to the core. I have to work like a dog to make ends meet. There's crooked politicians, crime in the street. I'm mad at them, like, and I ain't going to take it no more. It goes on, well, you know what's wrong with the world today? People don't put their Bibles away. They're living by the law of the jungle, not the law of the land. Well, the good book says it, so I know it's true. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Well, you better watch where you go. Remember where you've been. That's the way I see it. I'm a simple man. Well, for those of you who don't know, that is the Baptist, Charlie Daniels, otherwise known as a country music singer. But the reason we resonate with music, the literature like this, is because of emotion. People are drawn to emotion. We feel it, and we feel along with people who feel it. 
Because we all want to feel something. But we also live in a time where often emotion is bad, it's downplayed. For men, they'll often say, oh, he's too emotional, as if that's a sign of lacking masculinity, as if they're supposed to be some stoic. Or for women, I think a lot of them here, when their feelings are dismissed, will often tell them, well, that's just your emotions. I'll go, and I would never say that to a woman. I mean, just, and you can tell my wife's not here to correct me. But emotions are a good thing. In and of themselves, they're not bad. It's when we lose control of them that they become a problem. And the Psalms are perfect proof of this. The Psalms are filled with emotion. And specifically David. And David, what do we know? He's a man after God's own heart. And yet, who feels emotion like David? This is why I love the Davidic Psalms. And I probably have enjoyed them even more this summer. If there's enough devotion plans out there, you probably don't need another recommendation. But if you need one, just scripture. I've really enjoyed going through Solomon because we're doing the life of David in our church. But alongside that, I've been preaching Davidic Psalms. And when you pair them together, they make the perfect pairs. You get to get the narrative and the emotions that go along with it. And we know a lot of these emotions we think are wrong, aren't necessary. You remember from last week, it says, in your anger do not sin. Well, that means you must be allowed to feel anger. Or go through the Psalms. How many times does the psalmist ask why? And we're often made to feel as if that's a weak Christian asks God why. The Psalms are perfect for explaining to us that why is not a bad question. We just need to be careful again how we ask it. Are we crying out to God to ask Him why? Trying to get some kind of answer from Him? Or is it an accusatory question? As if, why God? How could you do this to me? That's again where we stray into uncontrolled emotions. But what emotion that has no redeeming features about it is bitterness. It's uncontrolled. But one thing we never see from David is bitterness. David does an incredible job of feeling strong emotions, and yet we don't see bitterness coming from him. But that's the easy place to go when life sucks. Very easy to become bitter when we're down. And that's why the psalm is so good for giving us insight. Why does David not become bitter? Because he knew both himself, he knew man, and he knew God. And Calvin says, that's where all things begin. Until you understand God, and you understand man, you can't go forward understanding anything. So tomorrow, or today, I divided this to a bit of a five-step program to preventing bitterness, and I feel very wrong doing that because one of the things I'll speak most strongly against is you ever see a book that says five steps to this or ten steps to that? Just walk past it because usually that symbolizes self-help. But in this case, I'm going to try to make a biblical argument with it. So beginning with step one, as we enter our first stroke here, where we need to start, as David does, coming to God in prayer. And I think, I'm assuming through the first few psalms here, we see already that pattern. Prayer in the morning, prayer in the evening, that morning-evening pattern, David. And what, that's what the psalm is. It is a prayer. We don't think about it because it doesn't look very much like ours, right? This probably doesn't mimic a lot of our prayer, mostly because it's, there's not a lot of requests in it. 
There's a pattern in here. There are two requests. But David lays out his requests, and then he gives his reasons for them. So in verse 1 and 2, he lays out a request. Then he spends 3 to 7, uh, explaining his reasons to God. Then again in verse 8, we have a request. And then the remainder again is laying out his arguments to God. David's ratio tells us about his adoration, and it's probably reversed to a lot of ours. If you want to try something, see how many of us can pray even just five minutes without a question mark in our prayer. It's a lot harder than you think. It's because often our focus is toward inward. We bring our requests to God because we want to deal with a lot of our inward uh, questions we have for Him. And also because we don't know God and we don't know our Bibles as well as we should. Knowing Scripture allows us to pray Scripture back to God. It allows us to pray our promise or claim God's promises. We can pray against His character. And I think God only loves it if we pray God's character back to Him. Saying, God, this is who you are. Why don't you act in this way? And he starts in verse 3 here with that morning prayer. For a lot of us, I think we probably agree, if we wake up moody and go about our day, usually is that day ever going to turn around? Probably that day is set the pattern. How we wake up, if we don't take it to God, is how we're going to carry out our day. We often feel rushed, so we use this as an excuse. Or I think of Luther once when he asked, how could he pray so long as he was known for, to pray for three hours each morning? He'd get up early, spend three hours in prayer. And when he was asked about this, he said he had to because he was far too busy not to. And we see this connection with David spending his morning in prayer. Well, what's the result? We go back to the end of Psalm 4. In verse 8, again, he ends his day to lie down in peace. And David's honest with God. We see, he tells God how he feels. Verse 1 and 2. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. <clears throat> and it's good, because the Puritans would speak that God understands the language of size. We don't need fancy words. We don't need long prayers. Even when all we can come to is we don't have energy. People are different. See, some people in their feeling really distressed at the times of great trial, they, good for them, they can go on praying for an hour, just pray and pray. I'll admit myself, the lower I get, I got nothing. I'll often, I got half a minute, I got a minute. And it's comforting to know David prays this way. Often the best we can come up to when we're out of strength, energy, drained of emotion, we got, just, we got, we don't even have energy for words. And God understands that as Romans 8 comforts us, knowing that even in our groans, the Holy Spirit takes us to the King. Or this can also be translated, not just that kind of side, it can also be a bit more of a anger, just a fed up, not knowing where to turn when we're just come to God and all we got is like a, just, we're just, we don't know what to do. And we ask God to answer us. Give us direction. But David still comes in respect, as we see in verse 2. He still says, my king, my God. Even though David is the king, he still remembers that God is the ultimate king. David is a lowly servant in light of the king. 
Sorry, I have to chuck my seagull and dog in the doorway. They're supposed to. Anyway. It's better than a government official showing up in the back door, right? I'll take a dog. In verse 3, David says, he shows, expects that God will answer. There's expectancy. David says, I've prepared a sacrifice and wait. How many of us end our prayers? And if we're really honest, we end it just saying, yeah, nothing's going to change. I don't see how this is going to change. David, in a lot greater stress than most of us will ever know, yet he sits there and expects God to do something. If we have humble hearts, we can expect to be heard, especially for us, because Christ takes our case to the king. Often we don't really get answers because we don't pray specifically enough. We kind of pray to God, can you just help Ukraine? Just help all the sick kids. Just be with our country. I think it's good to pray more specific. Direct uh, expectation that God can answer specific prayers. So this is our starting point. And where are you in your daily communion with God? Because it makes no sense to ignore your prayer life. And then come running to him, wondering why he's not doing anything about the trial that you're in. And then you get bitter that there's no response from God. Then step two, we need to not acknowledge our own depravity. You read the next three verses. As David writes all these things about the sinfulness of man. And on first reading, most of us will just say that David's writing about those people, right? And who are those people? Well, they're sinful people. But you actually notice in these three verses how much finger pointing is going on from David. Does he ever use words like them, they, they, those? David's not really speaking of the people around him. That's because David includes himself in this group. David knows in these three verses he fits into this category too. And you only have to go through the life of David for this. He was a liar, we remember the story, but in Himelech, he was boastful, counting his troops, an evildoer, committing adultery, deceitful, what he did to Uriah. David knows that the only reason he's not one of the wicked people destroyed is because he's come to God in repentance and acknowledged his own sin. An unrepentant sin is going to lead to a lot of melancholy, depression, and strife. This is why we see in I'll qualify, as I think should be common sense. Bills and counseling, money spent is all good things. But there's a lot of pills and money going to people who are going to think that that's going to solve their problem. And it never will. Or we have some kind of counseling method where we just need a listening ear, right? If someone, well, I'm just going to sit and listen to this person. Let them let it out. But the problem with bitterness is that's not going to be a solution. In fact, Jay Adams writes, bitterness, or people counseling, that only says, I'm going to be a listening ear, actually only drives a bitter person closer to suicide because it lets them dwell on their problems with no answers. How many of us, as we get fed up, what do we often do? Well, I just can't talk about it, right? We get so worked up talking about these things. When there's so much resentment in our heart, then we start discussing them. Well, we often just have to shut up and just say, I can't talk about this because it bugs us so much. 
Or worse, we find someone who's going to sympathize. They don't want to be enough of a friend in our life to point out bitter attitudes or sin. So they sympathize and encourage, enable us. So, for a lot of people, or I'll even say directly you, if you're not sleeping, and you're offended at someone's sin and it's keeping you up at night, well, I dare say it's probably not their sin keeping you up. It's the sin within. We think the evil done to David, think Saul, Absalom, uh, Sheba, many more. How many people wronged David? And yet, what does he do? End of verse, uh, Psalm 4 again. He lies down in peace and sleeps. David's able not to become so worked up about this. That's a problem. I don't want to be too critical of modern counseling, a lot of what I see going on around. But the problem is, there's no gospel to it. In fact, it's a reverse gospel. Instead of the answer being out there, it says the problem's out there. I'm going to look within, and I'm going to find the answer to my problems. The gospel says the problem is in here. We need to look out there. Only out there will we find an answer to our heart issues. And the reason I get so worked up about this, because in the name of grace, people are being robbed of it. And then in the name of love, right? All the methods, they're about love. But people aren't shown love when they're allowed to live like this. When they're left to just waste away in their bitterness and anger and resentment because no one's willing to confront them and bring a scriptural gospel that will actually heal the wounds of the heart. Yet, we also want to acknowledge not just their own depravity, because we both preach our own, but we know this does extend to everyone. And that's a good thing. That doesn't mean we should become bitter about it. Actually, it's good. Why do you say that's good? Well, because understanding the depravity and sinfulness of others reminds us that we're all dependent on grace, and it actually allows us to have a lot more grace for others around us. If you think what the government's done, the secularists around us, even our spouses, our kids, I mean, how easy is it to deal with the things that I feel hurt over by understanding the problems of the human heart, right? How many of us even take it to our marriage or our kids? We see how many have said that phrase in our minds, like, how could they do this to me? Like, how could they do it again? Or your kids, like, what are they? No, I don't know. Yeah, in my head, I sometimes say, are they stupid? Like, we wonder why they don't just do better, right? Well, the Bible gives us the answer. Why are we working so hard? And it actually makes our life easier. In fact, I think if my wife wouldn't believe in depravity, really, she probably would have left me a long time ago. Because it doesn't explain anything. But now, even when I feel hurt, when I can't understand why my kids do what they do, it's an easy answer. I don't need to go to some seminary course on counseling. It's so simple that people don't want to accept it. I have the answer. They're sinners. I'm sinners. So why would I hold out resentment that I feel hurt by my wife? Why would I hold it against her when I hope she gives me the same response? The problem is most of us have this kind of theory in our head. What do we naturally do without thinking about it? It's Augustine for me, Pelagius for thee. And to clear that up for some of you, that says, oh, when that person sins, right? When our government sins or enemy sins, someone wronged us. Well, they just can't believe they did that. They just made a bad choice, right? 
They deliberately chose to wrong me. Now when I make a mistake and I hurt someone, well, I didn't want it. That's my sinful nature, right? I'm working at it, but what do you expect? I'm a sinner. So we claim it for ourselves, but we don't extend that same grace to others. But the main point in all of this is not to work out earthly relationships. The reason David's so strong on this is because he knows that inclination to sin stands in strict opposition to the holiness of God. This is less about man's sinfulness and more about the holiness of God. <clears throat> because of it's God's holiness that all this sin is so abhorrent. See, what do we do, even with our kids? Much as we don't, but grandparents do. Kids sins, and we're correct it. We know it's wrong, but how many of you have ever done that? Covered your mouth and snicked it to your wife. See, grandparents kind of give it a look, but it's cute, right? Even in our sin, we find our kids, little kids are cute. God never finds any of this cute or laughable. There is no sense of sin that God finds endearing or appealing. Yet much of our versions of God are like this. Right? God's loving. So he disapproves, but he can kind of give it the wink at sin. This is not what David thinks. He would have no sense for this. This is heavy. This is the reason it's not spoken about mostly in church. Right? It's not sung about when I realized that we were saying that. I had to correct it. Well, it's sung about in some churches, good thing. As we sang through Psalm 5, I like that. That's why singing through all the psalms, there is a good thing about singing the psalms. Because you can't escape it. Right? So as we look in these next three verses, verse 4, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil, evil may not dwell with you. Alright, we find probably most people could get on board with that. That sounds pretty right. Now we move to verse 5. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. Now we've got some problems. God hating evildoers? But God doesn't hate anyone, right? He loves unconditionally. God doesn't hate anyone. You destroy those who speak lies. That doesn't sound right. Just for lying, God destroys people? He abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Again, abhors people. This is not the God that our modern culture sells. But David knew nothing from a God of love apart from his justice and holiness. I know you've been doing some Catechism, so I don't know if you've got to some of this, or maybe it's too quick to do a flyover, but this speaks to the simplicity of God. Simply the simplicity of God means that God is not made up of parts. Don't think simple as we know it. It means that you can't just say God is a God of love. That in this case, so in this situation, God acted in love. Or in this case, God was offended. Now God was angry here. No, God is one being. All parts mixed together. So whenever God loves, it's a holy, jealous, just love. You can't pull these things apart. And the comforting thing about, about this is because God is not made up of parts, that he can't fall apart. And the reason that God loves so much is because he hates anything that's in opposition to it. And this is why God didn't turn on God, or David didn't turn on God when he was punished for his sin. When his child wasn't killed from the affair with Bathsheba, 
bewildered about it, but he accepted it. Or when God came to him, offering a choice of punishments, when he took the census, David says at the end of that narrative, I have sinned greatly, take away my sin, I have done foolishly. We want to never get so comfortable with God that your sin doesn't offend you. There's a big difference between Romans 8, Romans 8, 1, saying there is no more condemnation for those who are in Christ, but in discipline. God will still discipline and chastise to try to sanctify us. So then how does David come to God so personally if we have this sin that is such an offense to God? Well, we get to verse 7 and step 3. Step 3 is know your identity. In verse 7, here we see the greatest word in the Bible, a little three-letter word, but. And it's interesting, ever since I came across that a couple months ago, I haven't preached a sermon where it hasn't come up. Because the whole of the gospel all relies on that word, but. Go to Ephesians 4, uh, Colossians 6, is it? Where Paul says, but, such were some of you. Everything hinges on that but. Whenever you see that in Scripture, I tell you, back up a bit. See what you just previously read? And then get ready what you're going to read after that. Because it's usually going to be a bunch of you are in the flesh, sinful desires. Everything sounds so negative. And you'll get that beautiful word, but. You are washed. You are redeemed. You are holy. It's a beautiful transition. And that's what we have here. He even knows it's all God, why he can come. He says, but I through the abundance of your steadfast love will enter your house. This term steadfast love that is used throughout the Psalms many, many times. That's not just a simple, normal word for love. That is God's covenantal love. So David prays as if he has this intimate relation with God, relationship with God. And he knows that nothing he's accomplished is because of himself. He can't boast in anything. Think, how's David anointed king? What part did he play in that? He killed Goliath. What part of that did David take part in? David keeps deflecting to God because it's only because of God. And why? Why could he do this? Why could he stand before a holy and just God? Because, as we see here, David had the fear of the Lord. David stands in fear of you. We've lost this because we often want to stand in comfort of God. We want to buddy up to Him. Right? We get too overwhelmed when we get out of our comfort zone. There should be a little bit of uncomfort when we see or have the fear of God. A lot of us turn to bitterness because we fear man and suffering more than we fear God. We think, how will this affect me? Often when we pray for deliverance or we pray for God to take out the evildoer, if we're honest, a lot of us want a more comfortable life. We want this affliction taken away, taken away and received. Well, if God would just take out that person, that would deal with my problems. We need to fear in the Lord because the fear of the Lord lies. It focuses first on God making wrong, wrongs right in His sight. And it makes us hunger for obedience. Obedience to His law, as David has in verse 8. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness. Because of my enemies, make my paths straight. 
See, this is why we don't despise those who wrong us or all the wicked we see going on around us. As we know, such for the, for the grace of God, there go us. See, what are we saying when we sulk over this, when we sulk over being slighted or all the wrong coming our way and become bitter? It says that Christ's promises aren't enough to overcome this. We're kind of like that spoiled child. You give something, you think you've really given them something great. Five minutes later, they want the next thing. It's not enough for them. We kind of treat the gospel that way, or God's love for us. And John Owen says, The greatest sin after becoming a Christian is to believe that God doesn't love you enough. How sad is it after all God's done for us that we have these feelings as if he's not loving us enough. Well, let me turn to step four in verse nine. And here, now David deal, lets God deal with his enemies. See, under this, David's able to point towards his enemies. But why he doesn't start here? Because we can't start with step two. We need to see our depravity first. See first, if we don't deal with depravity, well, then we become self-righteous. We're better. The wicked are just not doing good enough. And we'll get extremely frustrated by what's going on around us. Or if we start with step, uh, we miss step three in our identity, who we are in Christ, well, then we'll think very lowly of ourselves. And we'll become depressed with everything going on around us. <clears throat> See, David shows the reliance here on God in verse 8, when he says, In your righteousness, make your ways straight. He's meditated on the character of God. And he asks for help reflecting that. And why is he asking? Because he knows his enemies are watching. Right? What will make you more bitter than anything? When you actually think you are living right and righteously, and actually someone's wishing for your ill will. And I kind of... Yeah, it's there enough. Why ignore it, right? We felt this in our church. I felt this. And I don't want to burst anyone's bubble. But if I'm just honest, there are people out there who have hoped this church would fail. Right? They have different beliefs. They don't agree. Or we've had that. You move into an Anabaptist town, you will have people who want us to fail too. And it can be very hard. When you're actually thinking you're doing what God has wants from you, you're being faithful, and there are actually someone wishing that God's people would fail. That can be extremely frustrating and extremely not to let bitterness creep in. When you actually think you are totally in the right and someone is wishing you ill will. So how do we deal with, with this? The same way David does. Same way our parents often told us. Well, leave these people at the foot of the cross. Don't worry about that. It is not our concern to settle wrongs here. Right? Keep our focus. Where is our focus? As long as we're walking here, that's what David did. Came to God in the morning, went to sleep. God, how many of us have that problem? Sunday morning, good. Devotion's good. Yeah, we're good with God. You know, we step out into the world and going out, I got you, God. All some person catches it. What what what's going on over there? Alright, we walk what what we walk over there. And God's up there saying, Dude, I don't know. What's the 
You're running out there. Like you have everything here. Why are we so petty things? Right? We may think they're big, they're petty. We can commune with God. We can talk to him through Christ. Yet what do we do with what's going on? So many of us. I do, myself. There, and I forget everything here. And then after I come back, well, it's because of the holiness of God, right? But if I'm honest, I have trouble. Keeping focus is hard. But the reason I think David can deal so strongly here, because it'll sound like I'm contradicting myself in the next three verses. Now David goes on a full assault on his enemies. David opens up the guns, and in one sense we say, just don't worry about them. Well, once we're good here, and we keep, think of it kind of a tether, right? We got God's got us. We cut the tether and run off. We're going to now solve the world's problems. We're keep on the tether, the gospel. Now all of a sudden we can go up. I'm not saying don't engage the world. I'm not saying don't deal with things strongly. I'm saying get right here. Don't lose that tether. Head out. Now you're ready for battle. And this is a form of an imprecatory prayer. So we obviously don't have a problem praying against our enemies. Why is this not a contradiction? Well, I have three reasons. For one, look at these next three verses. Does David talk at all about the wrong done towards him? David's not worried about what's being done to him. It's all about the holiness of God. He's not trying to settle the wrongs, the personal vendettas. David's focus is strictly upwards in avenging God's holiness. Two, more practical, David had his chances to kill Saul. If it was for David's personal vengeance, he could have easily taken Saul out. But that wasn't David's job to do. Let God deal with your enemies. And three, because that's what David's doing, he's upholding the holiness of God. You see it clear, it's in verse 10. David says, Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against the weak. That sounds similar to Psalm 51. And we think, David, what he did to uh, Uriah, Bathsheba, all these sins, we think David should really ask for some forgiveness. And I'm sure he did, but what was David's focus there? The only thing we get from that uh, repentance prayer in Psalm 51, I've sinned against you. David knows that is the ultimate wrong, to sin against God. So if you want to avoid, avoid bitterness, don't make this about you. You think there's an offense there? Nothing is an offense compared to offense for God. And we think even David in verse 9 speaks towards them saying, as he says, the, uh, there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. Here David speaks about his enemies. But even Paul takes this in Romans. And Paul applies it universally. Even Paul doesn't let all of us off the hook. David was alright though. Making things, if God would make things right eternally. They didn't all have to be settled here. It was up to God. Their guilt will be accounted for. 
David just sings. Make them be accountable for their guilt, however you want to do it. He didn't need temporal judgment. There are some wicked people who will have no consequences, but it shouldn't cause us to stumble. Romans 12, don't avenge yourselves. Leave wrath to God, as he says, vengeance is mine. I will repay evil. That should give us peace. God will make all things right. There's nothing more miserable than someone living, waiting for earthly justice. If it's prayed for, for our enemies and wicked to be taken out, to for evil to be restrained, there's nothing wrong with that. But if it's prayed for personal satisfaction, is your life really going to get even better? If you think, for someone so bitter, let's say against the government, let's say, maybe I don't read the crowd, but I'm the only one who doesn't necessarily care for our Prime Minister. But if that's a problem in the heart, and he gets taken out, replaced, do you really think that fixes your heart? Does that make all your problems go away? If you're praying that that make, will make your life better, nothing's going to settle, because that's a heart problem. You can pray that prayer, but it better be, because you can't stand the offense toward God. Imprecatory prayers are just fine, and maybe I haven't come across it that they've been defined, but imprecatory prayers are those which pray uh, judgment on our enemies here on earth, not just eternally. But I've come to more of a belief that I think these need to be dealt with a lot more sensitive than I've even come. They're not for everyone. Maybe even just for elders to pray these prayers. I don't think there are prayers we give a 16-year-old new Christian and say you can pray these prayers or any new convert. Just because it's so hard to separate a hate of sin for the purpose of God than from our own personal problems. But this is where David's going to leave it because he's got something much better. Leaves it God, you're going to take them out? Great. But God, you're going to deal with them. That's up to you now. I'm not going to bother being bitter about this or waiting as if I won't be happy until this comes. I'm going to go on back to focusing about bigger things. He comes back to God in the last step. Step five, find your refuge in God. And here we get that word again, the beautiful but word. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them sing for joy. This is again why he goes to sleep in peace at the end of Psalm 4. And says, you alone make me dwell safety and safety. It's going to be nothing of our own doing that's going to give us sleep. Peace with God won't come because our enemies are dealt with. It's only going to become come when we find refuge with God. And verse 11 tells us this framework for joy. We want God to deal with our hurt and anger, but maybe God wants us to rather focus on the gospel and what's been done for us. We think we could just get to the place where we have a calm spirit, where we just kind of can keep our head above water. Well, God wants something much bigger for you. God doesn't want you to just walk through this life, kind of just being an overcomer. Think of David here. I'll live one of the hardest lives that you could ever walk through. And David has a flip side, being one of the most joyful people, being able to celebrate 
like no other. David's thinking a lot bigger than just sustenance. We often think, well, if we can be delivered, then I'll have joy. Once this is taken care of, I'm going to praise God and celebrate and worship Him. Well, there's nothing in this psalm that says anything in David's case has been settled. I would venture to say David's still in the middle of it. And yet, he goes on and ends the psalm in such praise. There's a problem waiting for deliverance, but you're going to wait for that to rejoice. Because you're usually going to keep waiting. God's going to be the next trial, the next affliction, the next person who's done something wrong, the next movement. And yet, David, in the middle of trial, he could celebrate in God's goodness. And even otherwise, remember when the Ark of the Covenant returned, David knew how to dance. There's different interpretations, even how much clothes he had on. Remember, his wife didn't like it, right? Let's just temper it down. She gave it one of these, I got off good food. And if you're a man in this church, if your wife never gives it one of these, but oh, you're probably doing it wrong. You should enjoy life enough that your wife has to sometimes give it one of those. We're made to live life and enjoy all the goodness that God's given us. Often one of the best defenses against bitterness is quit dwelling on it. Quit waiting for it to be sold. Go on. Have a joyful heart. Thankfulness. Sing. Laugh. Celebrate. Feast. Don't sit in a darkened corner. Don't wait for things to be healed. Why not bask in God's goodness? All the gospel's done for you. Verse 12 will drive us home. If we understand this, bitterness is just unacceptable. Right? Knowing that we don't deserve anything but judgment. But now, David says, you bless the righteous, O Lord, and cover them with favor, as with a shield. And why do we find that favor? Only because of the blood of Christ. So we haven't got back to a place of neutral. It's not that God just okay, we're right with God, the cross elevates us. Now we're kind of on neutral footing. No, it's so much more. We're covered, and we can walk forward in confidence. Verse 12, almost typifying, if I think, this language of being covered in favor. I don't think it's so far to go as we take Luther's language of Christ's imputed righteousness, a righteousness which drapes over us when we're going to stand before Christ. Because there's going to be nothing good, even no matter how good you live, there will be nothing you bring which God will look upon and say, I approve of that. We're all in trouble if God's going to look upon us. But now, as Luther would describe this, as a cloak of righteousness. So now it comes, draped over you, that God sees nothing, nothing of your own depravity. He just sees the righteousness of Christ. That life that Christ lived, perfect, fulfilling all the demands of the covenant, everything perfectly. God will look at that and say, now, he's perfect, blameless. There is nothing in there. I'm pleased, not pleased with. What a beautiful thing, right? When you contrast really what would be underneath that cloak. And yet God doesn't see it as Christ comes. Cover us. None of us are going to walk into judgment. Walk forward on our own, right? Standing before God and uh, uh, 
No, you're going to come. Sanctified imagination, you're going to come to that door. Now think how beautiful this is. Before you even walk through that door, you're going to be nervous, right? I'm going to face King of Kings, the throne room. Now Christ is going to be there at the door. Saying, Stu, it's all right. We got this. Don't go in there alone. I'll go out in front of you. You follow me. I got you covered. So I'll walk in. Nothing. All on him, right? And God will look on Christ, my perfect son, and he'll say, perfect, righteous, you can dwell in my presence. So in light of that, how silly of us to come here gathered, understand the gospel, understand that's been done for us. And then what do we do? We go out in the week, and we lose it. Someone's back on our grass. Someone's... I'm sorry, that was written before I preached in this church. It's going to seem as if I'm making that person. Anyway, someone screwed us for 10 bucks, right? This is the biggest deal on earth. Someone set aside from it. Someone slandered you. Someone slandered this church. It's like, we get worked up over this. Really? That's what we get worked up. What we just explained. I'm going to, hopeless as I be, I'm going to walk in front of God, covered by Christ. Now I'm going to get upset that someone made me come. Someone's misrepresenting me. I'm going to lose sleep over that. Right? Let's keep that in balance. And I don't say that as um, criticism or trying to be hard. Again, I say it because in the name of grace, people are being bothered. Right? If you have the gospel, I wish everyone could understand that. Go out into the world. Big deal. I'm covered by Christ. Right? Yeah. Ideologies we see all around. Laws, just horrible. Big deal. Right? Big deal in reference to God. Big deal in light of God's holiness. Right? Of me being offended? Not a big deal. I'm going to sleep in peace. That's what I wish you would go to bed. The gospel that's asleep in peace. Line of think about time time again, often. Say, biggest thing that ever came to me, understanding Reformed theology. Forget who said it, I should know, because it's my favorite quote. Providence is a cruel pillow, which I go to sleep at night. Right? People don't like our doctrine of providence, you're missing out. I go to bed, sleep like a baby. This is all in God's hand. What am I worried about? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much, Lord, that you are merciful, patient, kind, loving, jealous, hateful. You do hate sinfulness. And yet, you know our own sinfulness, but because of Christ, you don't see it. We are free of it. We walk, we work, the Spirit sanctifies us, be with us. Lord, I pray, not that people would be 
bother by any of this, but instead that it would be an exhortation to actually bring us more peace, more comfort, that it would give us a greater joy in life, that we don't have to be dragged down by the things around us that are wanting us, but they're not a big deal in the light of your gospel. Pray us all in the name of Jesus. Amen. charges us that the seeds of bitterness are planted whenever we believe that we have been treated worse than we deserve. Self-expectations of the will, both God's and others, will only lead to resentment. We must understand the biblical view of both God and man before we can find peace. Only through our union with Christ by his death and resurrection may we enter his rest. This should be a, this should be a blessing, a gift to, not a God to. Our focus should be on the grace from above, not the affliction that surrounds. So sleep in peace. All will be made right through Christ. Benediction comes from Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with all the joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in